Turn with me, if you will, to John's chapter 6 again. John chapter 6, we continue our study of this fourth gospel. <clears throat> John 6, we'll be considering uh, verses 14 through 26. <clears throat> After that, Air Force pilot Scott O'Grady was shot down over Bosnia, I remember, in the wake of his survival experience for six days on the ground there before he was picked up, I remember him commenting that he wished he had paid more attention when he was back in survival school over in Spokane. They tried to prepare him for such an ordeal, and he thought it would never happen to him, and just really didn't pay that much attention, and then suddenly... He needed to know those things. This morning, I think we sit in with the disciples in Jesus' survival school as he prepares his disciples for the things that they and we will have to face. And I would suggest that if we pay more attention, we'll find it easier to survive in the midst of the struggle when that hits us someday if it hasn't already. Well, let me read our text from verse 14 to 26. This is in the, in the wake of the feeding of the 5,000, just occurred in the verses before this. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. We'll end there. <coughs> I think there are two lessons we need to learn from this passage today. And the first is this, lessons in discipleship, lessons for the struggle. Here's the first one. Jesus didn't come to indulge us. Jesus did not come to indulge us. We love to indulge ourselves, you know. Spend a little extra to have things really special. Splurge a little on luxuries. Pamper ourselves by just giving in to our every desire at least once in a while. 
we owe it to ourselves, we say. And that private extravagance spills into public life. For example, we all want spending cuts by government and lower taxes. But when the appropriations bills are making their way around Capitol Hill, we certainly expect our congressmen to bring home the bacon, or pork maybe we call it. I mean, we sent him there, right? He's there to serve us. Well, imagine the people's delight with Jesus. They go out, out on a hillside to check out this curious teacher. And what does he do? Free food. <laughs> he makes lunch for everyone out of almost nothing. Man, this guy is wonderful, isn't he? This is the kind of king we need. According to verse 15, a movement started to draft him, make him by king, to take him by force if necessary, to make him their king. Verse 22 to 24 tells us how they followed him with great diligence, searching, where is this man? How are we going to get there? They gave their attention to finding him. And the next day in verse 26, Jesus is on the other side of the lake addressing them concerning the same thing, their love for the free food. We still have these people around in politics. They come out of the woodwork every election day looking for candidates who will promise, if elected, that the government will provide free lunches for everybody. We could get into quite a little political discussion about that. But we won't. This isn't about politics. Oh, but isn't this every evangelist's dream come true? Here are crowds of people, thousands of people, in hot pursuit of Jesus. They search for him. They follow him across the lake to other towns. They acclaim him to be the promised prophet sent from God. They want to make him their king. Hallelujah! Isn't this what we want? Don't you wish our ministry had such fervor and such excitement and such a following? And Jesus says, no. No, he slips away. When they hunt him down, he rebukes them. And by the end of the chapter, we get over to verse 66, it says, but from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. He ran them off. What's the matter here? What's he doing? I thought he came to reach the multitudes. I thought he came to call people to follow him. I thought he came to be the king. Think of what is lost if Jesus accepts their plan and allows them to make him king. His kingdom is redefined. Rather than coming to do the will of his father, as he said so often, he would then exist to do the will of the people. He becomes a public servant, driven by the will of the constituency, rather than the promised servant of Yahweh, driven by God's eternal plan to save. Also, many churches have fallen prey to that, assuming that their pastor and their elders were there to do the will of the people rather than seeing them there as servants of the Lord, 
But Jesus rejects that kind of kingdom. That government of the people, by the people, and for the people. He says, no, not my kingdom. I want none of it. He would not compromise his absolute sovereignty. He would not be their king on their terms. Oh, but even more than his independent sovereignty is lost if he accepts that kingship. If Jesus accepts their plan, our salvation is lost. Just like when he was tempted in the wilderness, he is being offered here to a crossless kingdom. You remember when Satan said, look at all that you can see all around you, all the kingdoms. I'll give you all of this. You just bow the knee to me. And here the people are offering him, we'll give you the kingdom, just feed us. Oh, make no mistake, this would have been the easy way. Power, authority, popularity, and no pain. But if there was no cross, there would be no forgiveness of sin. There would be no reconciliation to God. There would be no eternal life. And in the long run, the people perish. They may enjoy free food for 50 years, but in Jesus' own words, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You see, they perceived Jesus to be the promised prophet, and he was. And they wanted to make him king, and he came to be king. But what they failed to understand is that for God's plan, and for God's kingdom to progress, Jesus first had to become a faithful priest who offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Otherwise, there is no kingdom. Everyone is destroyed and condemned forever. You see, Jesus didn't come to indulge us. He came to save us. And that he's determined to do, even at the cost of his own popularity. Folks, we're not so different from those people. Even while professing our faith in Jesus, while calling him Lord, we so subtly try to redefine his kingdom to suit our agenda. <coughs> we pick and choose through his words to advance our political cause. We pick and choose through his teaching to advance our social agenda. We pick and choose through the things he did, the things he said to come up with the gospel which promises that we'll always feel good, that we'll be happy, that we'll have everything that we want that will never be sick. In short, a gospel that promises that Jesus will indulge us, pamper us. But you see, when we do that, we're doing exactly what Jesus refused to do. We are choosing to avoid the cross, to avoid self-denial, to avoid opposition, to avoid discomfort, to avoid dying in favor 
of wanting to be pampered. While Jesus refused to be indulged with popularity and power and fame, choosing rather to go to the cross in order to save us. William Barclay makes the same point. He says, the attitude of that mob disgusts us, but are we so very different? When we want comfort in sorrow, when we want strength in difficulty, when we want peace in turmoil, when we want help in face of depression, there is no one so wonderful as Jesus, and we talk to him and walk with him and open our hearts to him. But when he comes to us with some stern demand for sacrifice, with some challenge to effort, with the offer of some cross, we will have nothing to do with him. When we examine our hearts, it may be that we will find that we too love Jesus for what we can get out of him. morning I must prepare you for what's ahead. You see, as long as you think that Jesus came to indulge you, to pamper you, to meet your every need, it is just a matter of time before he disappoints you. And you turn on him and throw away your faith. The world is full of people who used to call themselves Christians, who used to sit in these pews or others every Sunday, but now are mad at God because he didn't come through for them. He didn't do what they wanted. He didn't do that miracle that they know he could have done if he wanted to. He didn't give them what they thought they deserved. I want to tell you right up front, Jesus didn't come to indulge you, to pamper you, to give you what you want. Though we enjoy countless blessings from his hand, for which we ought to be grateful, his agenda is not to see how comfortable he can make us. No, Jesus came to do the Father's will to accomplish God's plan of salvation. And that meant laying aside his glory, suffering humiliation at the hands of his creatures, enduring hostility and rejection and pain, going to the cross where he was crucified in agony and dying like a common criminal in order to save sinners from judgment. Now he calls you and me to take up the cross, to lay aside our natural concern for ourselves, to abandon our commitment to comfort and wealth, to do without many things, to endure many other things, in short, to do anything necessary to accomplish the Father's will, to bring sinners to the Savior, to build them up in the faith, and to take them to glory. Jesus came to save, not to indulge us. And he calls us 
to labor for the same goal. That's still his plan. It's time for us to stop praying, bless me, bless me, bless me, Lord, and I'll make you king of my heart. Bow our knee to the sovereign authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords and to take up his cross and to lay aside ourself and to go serve him no matter what the cost. Then along with that great challenge comes a word of encouragement, which is our second truth. As we do, Jesus never abandons us. Jesus never abandons us. <clears throat> this week, the president announced the normalization of relations with Vietnam, and a lot of old wounds were open. You see, the issue is not whether Vietnam was a good idea for America. The issue is not whether it was too hard of a job to send fighting men to do. No, the issue is that American fighting men felt abandoned by those who sent them there. The bitter emotion that some felt this week was the feeling that they'd been abandoned again. Well, folks, Vietnam was a Sunday school picnic compared to the task which Jesus sent his disciples to do. You say, well, that's kind of an overstatement. No, it's not. Many more thousands of people have suffered and died for the name of Jesus than ever suffered and died as casualties in Vietnam. And here, 2,000 years later, God's people are still suffering and dying and heroically trying to be faithful to Christ in this raging spiritual war that goes on throughout the world. And this little time of peace that we know here at this time in this place is an exception to the rule. But all of that has not taken the Savior by surprise. He knew this was going to happen. He understood that he was calling his disciples to go lay down their lives, to go to the cross with him. And so he did a wondrous thing. He gave his disciples a sign so that even in their darkest hour, they would remember this great truth. Our Lord Jesus will never abandon us. Jesus will never abandon us. That's the point of this incident on the Sea of Galilee, I believe. John only tells us the sketchiest facts about it. The other evangelists fill in some of the details. When Jesus escaped from the crowd and went off by himself, he told his disciples to go ahead ahead of him and go on to Capernaum. Now, actually, Capernaum wasn't that far away. It was just across the northern end of the lake from Bethsaida, which is where they were on the northeastern part of the lake, and Capernaum was over on the northwestern part of the lake. Evidently, the disciples waited around a while hoping that Jesus would rejoin them and go with them in the boat, but it got to be dark and he hadn't arrived yet, and so they went on without him, like he said. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a tricky little body of water. It sits 600 feet below sea level and it forms a cup-like body and 
relation to the mountains, the little hills all around it. And when the evening comes and it begins to get cool, the cooler wind sweeps in across the hills from the west and it kicks up quite a little storm sometimes on this relatively small body of water. Just to show how rough it was as they proceeded across the lake, Matthew and Mark tell us that these disciples, remember this, included some seasoned fishermen, Peter and James and John. They spent their whole life on that little lake. Matthew and Mark tell us that these disciples rode until the fourth watch of the night. The night was divided into four watches. The fourth watch would be from 3 to 6 a.m., roughly. They went about dark. They rode till 3 to 6 in the morning, maybe eight hours of rowing. And John tells us they made about three to three and a half miles. Seasoned fishermen rowing eight hours, and they make three miles. They're in the midst of a storm. It's rough. It's terrible. Oh, but I think that the storm wasn't the only problem. It wasn't their only struggle. There certainly had to be a sense of letdown after the wonderful miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Then they had to be discouraged by Jesus' reluctance to be made king. I mean, that, they thought that's what, what was going to happen. They thought that's what it was all about. And they were tired. It's one of the reasons they'd gone over to the, cross the lake in the first place, to get some rest with Jesus, and that never happened. The crowd came, and they never got their rest. And then after waiting for a long time, hoping Jesus would, would show up, Jesus didn't show up, and now feeling quite alone. Where is he? What's he doing? Why didn't he come with us? probably feeling some sense of rejection from him too. But they're determined to do what he told them, and so they row. They're going. But it's night again, and it's in the middle of the night, and they're getting no sleep, and the storm's getting worse, and they're rowing harder, and they're exhausted. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. They've been rowing all night. And they wanted rest yesterday morning. They're struggling. They're struggling. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, exhausted, spent, at their wit's end. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe that's where you are this morning. A long valley of despair on the other side of some mountaintop experience. Or maybe a situation where you thought you knew what God's will is and suddenly all your plans were dashed on the rocks and now you don't know what on earth he might be doing. Nothing seems to make sense, and you're tired, and you're weary. As they say, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. How often have you labored to the point of exhaustion? It seemed you're getting nowhere, and God was nowhere to be found. Left you abandoned, pulling on the oars, getting nowhere. Picture of a lot of our lives. Oh, but you see, Jesus knew that they were going to have this struggle. He knew that they were going to struggle, sometimes to the point of despair. He knew we were going to struggle, and so he gives them a sign. A sign that he never abandons his own. There they are in the middle of the lake. It's the wee hours of the morning. They're pulling for all their worth, and Jesus appears walking on the water. Now it never says here that they were terrified of the storm. They were seasoned fishermen. But they were terrified at this sight. 
What is it? What's going on? All the folklore of spirits in the night on the water probably came back to haunt them. They were terrified. And Jesus said to them in verse 20, It is I. Don't be afraid. Literally, he says, I am. Fear not. They took him into the boat, and immediately everything was all right. Oh, think about the impact of this miracle. It was not done for the crowd. In fact, when they got to Capernaum, there's no discussion of what happened on the lake during the night. It was a sign for his disciples. It was an encouraging word to them. Oh, but you see, this sign showed that this Jesus, whose agenda they didn't understand right now, that this Jesus is the powerful covenant-keeping Yahweh who brought his people through the Red Sea and proved that he was always present with them. Pastor Bruce Milnes explains, Jesus appears here as the Lord of the waves and the sea, the personal manifestation of the Almighty who walked upon the waters at the Red Sea. That's what it says in Psalm 77, the water saw you, O God, the water saw you and writhed. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Merrill Tenney, one of the foremost scholars on the Gospel of John, says the miracle was designed to demonstrate that Jesus could be with them under any circumstance. That's how the church has understood this miracle through all these centuries. William Lane cites a whole list of ancient writings in the church and concludes, and I quote, at an early date, this episode was interpreted as a pledge of Christ's aid. It provided the martyrs with the assurance of Jesus' saving nearness to all who believe and obey him. Jesus never abandons his own. We look through the scriptures, the history of God's people is not a history free of trouble. Job suffered untold grief and misery. Joseph was faithful down to the details of his life and he suffered for it. The prophets proclaimed God's word faithfully, and they suffered. The twelve disciples were each to die for Christ, except John, who was exiled. The apostle Paul, history tells us, was beheaded for the gospel. And through the centuries, countless thousands of Christians have suffered. The history of God's people is not a history free of suffering. Oh, but the history of God's people is also a testimony to the sustaining presence of the living Christ in every situation. God promised it in Isaiah 43. He said, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He promised it in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. He promised it in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. 
If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your right hand will guide me and your hand will hold me fast. And Jesus' last words to these very disciples before he ascended into heaven was what? Same promise. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus never abandons his own. This morning I want to pointedly call you to faithfulness to God's agenda, to the way across, not the way of self-indulgence. This notion that God's plan is to pamper and indulge his spoiled children, giving us every little thing that our selfish hearts desire, this notion is outrageous. God has certainly blessed us but he's called us to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. He's called us to labor in his vineyard. He's called us to feed and care for his flock. He's called us to build his holy temple. All of those are pictures which focus on mission and effort and considerable cost. For that mission, for that goal, the will of the Father, Christ came, suffered, and died. And to that mission, he has called us. But as I challenge you with faithfulness to that calling, I also set before you this sustaining promise. It doesn't matter how dark it is. Jesus never abandoned his own. It doesn't matter how alone you feel. Jesus never abandons his own. It doesn't matter how much someone or anyone or everyone is against you. Jesus never abandons his own. It doesn't matter how the storm blows. It doesn't matter how long you've had to row. It doesn't matter how tired you might be. Jesus never abandons his own. It doesn't matter whether you see him. It doesn't matter, matter whether you understand what he's doing or not. Jesus never abandons his own. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I'm with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God, and I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotence. Hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you. Your troubles to bless, sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, 
My grace all sufficient will be your supply. The flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when hoary hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my arms be born. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foe. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Oh, thank you, Father, for this great assurance that you never abandon your own. Oh, Lord, we are not quite prepared for the struggle that we see your disciples having as we look in your word, as we read of your church around the world, oh Lord, it terrifies us to think that we might have to endure that. And how could we do it? And how could we be faithful? And how can we even be faithful in a day of compromise and complacency? But thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be so capable, so self-sufficient. Thank you, Lord, that your promise is nothing less than your very presence with us to the very end of the age. Will God grant us faithfulness, grant us confidence, believe your promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.